This message was presented at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Good afternoon. Shall we bow our heads? Father, thank you for your goodness. We need your presence today. We need to open hearts to receive your, your message into our lives. And so we ask you for your divine guidance and your special presence in our own minds. We thank you for your goodness and claim it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Good to see you this afternoon. And we're going to be discussing something that is not shown on your, in your bulletins. I'm going to be dealing with, uh, with Desmond Ford. Now you say, why would you deal with Desmond Ford? Because no one knows much about Desmond Ford anymore. Fact is that Desmond Ford is very much alive today. He is preaching and his sermons are on the air. People are listening to them all the time. And the issues that Des Ford faced with us with are with us today within this church in a very profound way. We're going to discuss some of the issues that were involved in that. And we're going to, first of all, discuss the fact that Des was seeking to provide an answer for the problems that I've talked with you about in earlier uh, messages, and that has to do with legalism. Now, legalism, there are two different ways we can vary from God's plan. Legalism will lead us to dependence upon ourselves without realizing it, but seeking to make ourselves perfect. But there is the opposite track, which denies the need for perfection, which leads us in the wrong track as well. Now, we're going to discuss Des's attempted contribution, but before we do that, we must first of all recognize where we've jumped track as a people. First of all, when we resisted the Minneapolis message, we were asking for a basket full of problems because the Minneapolis message has the answers to Christian experience. Without the Minneapolis message, we're bound to run into lots of different problems. And one of the problems we faced was introduced by Norval Pease. I don't know if any of you know of Norval Pease, but in 1945, and for many of you, that was before you were born, but I see there are quite a few older heads too, and you may remember Norval Pease, but Norval Pease did a seminary uh, study on the 1888 message, Minneapolis message. He came to a conclusion which has derailed us. His conclusion is that the Minneapolis debate was over justification versus sanctification. Now, the fact is that for centuries, the Christian world, papal world, uh, before Protestantism, had divided the righteousness into justification and sanctification. Now, this an attempt on, to do it, by doing that, it's an attempt to resolve the problem of legalism on the one hand and antinomianism on the other. To show how they relate, the fact is they don't relate that way. And so when we think of justification as forgiveness, sanctification as developing character, what happens is it leaves us open to both legalism and antinomianism. And the fact is that when he wrote his thesis, it was not very long before our ministers began echoing that. And, 
a great deal has been made of justification and sanctification. I would like to say before I go any further that the Bible makes no different, no, the Bible does not compare or contrast these. Actually, justification and sanctification begin simultaneously. It's not one that is followed by another. And so, when we have a concept of justification, then sanctification, this puts us in a wrong understanding of the plan of salvation. Because when I receive Christ's righteousness, I am justified. But I cannot be, even begin my sanctification life without receiving him. And that is the same thing that brings to me justification. So brothers and sisters, instead of focusing on justification or sanctification, and as P said, the question was how much of justification, how much of sanctification, this actually tends to focus on legalism. How much sanctification? Well, that then becomes a question of how much do I have to do? How much does Christ do? But these are not biblical principles. The Bible doesn't deal with the question of how much do we receive from justification, how much are we responsible for in sanctification. It was my own childish confusion over this very thing that caused me so much agony. Because if I had only understood the relationship of justification and sanctification, realizing that when I am justified, I'm reunited with Christ. And that's what sanctification, sanctification begins when I'm in union with Christ. It's a, it's, I live this Christ life. I allow him to live out his life. We have that song, you know, live out thy life within me, O Jesus. King of kings, be my, thou thyself answer to all my questionings. When I unite with Christ, I am justified. I am also sanctified. Now, neither justification nor sanctification are once, uh, 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 and then it continues. Justification is valid only while I am in relationship to Christ. In Christ, I am perfect. I do not have to seek perfection. I do have to seek his will. But in him, I am perfect already. And then through the ministry of his Holy Spirit, he works in me both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, because Desmond Ford did not understand these principles any more than the rest of us did, and by the way, Desmond Ford and, and I are fairly close in age. He's probably about two years older. But we were living at the same time and dealing with the same types of issues. Uh, I happened to be dealing with them much sooner than he because I was only seven years old when I became involved. By the way, I was not involved in theological discussions. I had never discussed things theologically and didn't think theologically. But my question is, how can I be accepted by God? And that really is the question of how can I become perfect? God calls for us to be perfect. Now, that doesn't mean that we are perfect in ourselves. But we must be perfect in him when we are in him, depending on him, we are acknowledged by the Father as being without sin. And that's what we need. Now, what Desmond Ford sought to do was to find a way to resolve the kind of problem that I was going through. So when we're speaking of Desmond Ford, uh, I want to make sure that I'm not meaning to belittle him. I'm not wanting to... to uh, in any way speaking of him as being a bad person. 
Desmond Ford were seeking the same answer I was seeking, but I don't think either one of us had any idea what we were even seeking. We were just, both of us in different ways were led to seek the same answers. And I'm grateful for the way in which God led me. Now I want to take a look at this little chart with you. When Norval's peas split justification, sanctification separated them, this was a commonly held error in Christendom. In other words, Norval Pease did not invent this theory. This is a theory that was hundreds of years old that had been there and had been accepted by most of the Protestant world, uh, but it was a theory that was developed during the papal period that we must uh, separate justification and sanctification in order to avoid legalism on one hand or antinomianism on the other. What it really does is to leave one group with legalism, the other with antinomianism. It causes us to fight one another. It causes one group to oppose the other. And in each case, for good reason, but in each case without understanding and a failure to it. So what was the problem that I had? Well, justification to me had to do with past deeds. God justifies, he forgives. And sanctification had to do with my living according to his principles. So, the question is, how can I relate to God on a day-to-day -day basis? I sought to do so by trying to be good enough for God to accept me. And in reality, that's impossible. It's impossible for anyone to be spiritually clean enough for God to accept. But he will, the Father will accept the righteousness of Christ, and we have that righteousness when we are in him. One of the brothers was raising a question with me, and would you, could you ask the question again that you asked me? I, I've forgotten how you worded it. Yes. Yeah. But the way I understood it, it said toward the end of time, we will have both. The, essentially, I understand it to be only the 144,000 will be at a point where they're perfect. Because once the 144,000 go through the time of Jacob's trouble, everyone else will be dead anyway. Right? So perfection will only come through the 144, not everybody that gets to that point. Yeah, the 144,000 have the Father's name written in the forehead. Now, that Father's name is a symbol of his character. The 144,000 will have a character which we may call perfect. I do not, and there was a time when I used the word perfect more. I don't use it very often because it's more confusing to most people than it is helpful. When perfection is talked about, we're almost always thinking about our actions. The real problem is not our actions. The actions that are wrong are a result of uncleanness. What our problem is, is uncleanness. That means self, selfishness. Every form of selfishness is unclean. God created us to love him and our neighbors fully. And when we think of self, then that puts self as the one that we are seeking to, to benefit rather than others. But the fact is that uncleanness cannot enter the kingdom of God. And Christ is going to cleanse his people. And that cleansing will take place only by the presence of Christ in the life. And when we receive Christ's righteousness, 
we receive his character. He comes to us, as Philippians says, to work in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So it isn't just uh, some kind of figment of, uh, of what God says about us. It's something he does within us. He is himself responsible for our victory. It is God that works in us both to will and to do. And Paul says in the same book of Philippians, he says, being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Now, that is our guarantee and assurance that he will continue that work. And thank God when we are unaware of it and, and, and become more, more selfish, he will allow us to undergo special spiritual conflict in order to teach us our need to shift our, back, our focus back to him. So, coming back to the question of peace, we have, as a denomination, we have begun to think of righteousness in terms of justification versus sanctification. And this was not a good thing for Des Ford because he could see that the result was that those who were seeking righteousness were actually becoming legalistic. And that has been the case with thousands of our members. The more intensely we seek perfection, the more we tend to become self-centered. Our need is Christ-centeredness. Our need is to focus on him. Our need is to trust him, to depend on him, to claim his promises, and thus we claim his righteousness. And it is a righteousness which we are told that if we're in Christ, God sees us as though we had never sinned. Not just that as we are perfect, but as though we had never sinned. Now, what happened with me and has happened with countless others is that justification was seen to be passed for past sins. Sanctification had to do with the present and the future. And uh, actually what happened is it resulted in uncertainty and anxiety over the judgment. How can I pass the judgment? How can I be faithful and faithful enough for God to pass me through the judgment? And how do I know if I have enough righteousness to pass the judgment? These are questions that Des Ford was trying to resolve, questions that I needed to resolve and that God helped me to understand in a different way. So this is what ultimately caused Des to repudiate the judgment. He saw the judgment as a cause for uncertainty. We never know what's going to happen. Now, Ellen White says not to call yourself saved. Don't say, I am saved. But she does not advocate the opposite of saying, I am not saved, and doubting our salvation. God wants us to trust him with our salvation. And when we trust him, he will do what is necessary to bring us into repentance as we need it and, and to prepare us for his coming. In the meantime, it is the presence of Christ through his spirit that gives us victory over sin. If we gain victory, true victory over sin, but at all times, we ourselves are unclean by nature. <clears throat> What we are in ourselves will never pass us through the judgment. What we are in Christ guarantees passage through the judgment. And, uh, and so when we receive Christ, we are justified. We are sanctified. And by the way, the Bible does speak of sanctification in all tenses, past, present, and future. So we are sanctified, but the Sanctifying, it is 
actually the Greek has the same meaning of being sanctified. We are sanctified, but it is a process, a process that continues as justification must also continue. Now, as a result of our separating justification and sanctification, this has become traditional with Adventists, and you'll notice it in every Sabbath school class, wherever you are, sooner or later the question is coming up about justification or sanctification. Are you giving enough attention to sanctification, or are you depending on justification? This is an issue that needs to be dealt with. But what the justification versus sanctification does is to cut the tail off from one and the head off from the other. In other words, when we think of it, justification versus sanctification, we cut the tail off from justification. Justification is a process of maintaining connection with Christ. That's what sanctification is. And sanctification begins with reunion with Christ, which is justification. And so I have indicated this by this little diagram that it cuts the tail off from one, the head off from the other. Neither of these are understood properly. They cannot be understood except together, not separate. Because the justification is a correction of the problem that Adam and Eve got us into to begin by, by separating us from God. Justification reunites us with God. And that's the purpose of sanctification. And in that, in that state, we grow in sanctification. It's the same thing that is essential to start sanctification. But sanctification is a work of a lifetime, but so is justification, the work of a lifetime. So I am, I can understand my sanctification only as continuing justification. In other words, they're not separate things. They really have to do with the same process of salvation that begins at the same point. Because I can't begin sanctification until I'm reunited with him. And I'm not reunited with him unless I'm justified. And if I am justified, I am already being sanctified. Because that is the process of sanctification, is a state of union with Christ. Des seeks to resolve this problem that I had, a problem that I had for the eight years that I mentioned in the first session. Some of you weren't here. But uh, for eight years, I had no assurance. Indeed, I was very depressed much of the time because I felt that I was lost. The fact is that I felt that I had no right to be justified because of the fact that I chose to sin and knew what, that the Holy Spirit was saying no. Therefore, when I sinned, I expected him to forgive me. And now this is presumption for me to sin and plan to confess is presumption. Now, is it true that he will forgive me? Yes, any sin can be forgiven, but uncleanness cannot be covered up. It must be, it must gain victory over it, and we have victory of it only by focusing away from self and on Christ. But the question of sins, we're not lost or saved by question of whether we have committed sin or not. All our sins were already canceled at the cross. Now that's not justification at the cross. That's atonement at the cross. And we have great need. I still don't know yet. I have advertised to begin with, I was going to deal with Daniel, but I've, I think I need to deal more with, with the issue of justification. Uh, it's very simple. You can say it in a few words, but somehow the mind does not grasp until we have the experience. Uh, 
and it takes time to learn how to relate to Christ in such a way to have that experience. And so what I am hoping and praying is that during these few sessions, those of you who have come, come repeatedly will have that experience. Not when you get home, but when you're here. In other words, it begins now. We, uh, we, need, we need the righteousness of Christ. And only when we sense that need will we claim it properly. But justification versus sanctification formula then breeds legalism and antinomianism. One group focuses on one part of God's word and insists on that. The other group focuses on another, insists on that. Both are partly right and both are wrong. They do not have, uh, they, uh, until we integrate faith and obedience, God's grace and the law, until these are brought together in our lives through the presence of Christ, we will not have the experience. And that means that in order for me to have experienced justification as a young man, I had to be willing to surrender to him fully. I had to be willing to, uh, to pay any price to do whatever he wanted me to do. But did that decision, is that what justified me? No, Christ is the one who justifies me on the basis of his experience. And when I realize that as there's no experience that will carry me through the judgment but his experience, then I begin to understand what Christ, our righteousness, really means. What Desmond Ford discovered was Plymouth Brethren theology. To him, it seemed as though Plymouth Brethren theology solved all of the problems. Now, I don't know if you understand what Plymouth Brethren theology is or where it started, but I would like to share with you something of the background of Plymouth Brethren theology. Plymouth Brethren uh, uh, originated in the British Isles, and the Plymouth Brethren were actually individuals who responded to the first and second angels' messages before we ever were, before any of our members were ever even together. In other words, before William Miller's time. As a matter of fact, it, Ellen White was born in 1827. In about 1826, a book was published in, uh, translated from Spanish to English. And that book was called The Coming of the Messiah in Power and Great Glory. That book was written by a Jesuit priest, Emmanuel Lacunza. There were some very interesting things in that book and some things that made it look like it must be uh, uh, the right thing because a Catholic priest is declaring in that that the Antichrist was yet to come, but identified the Antichrist as a Catholic prelate. And this gave a sense to the, those who were involved in the, in the Brethren movement. And by the way, it was not then called Plymouth Brethren. It was just Brethren. They refused to uh, form any church or to identify themselves with any name. So they just said, people said, <coughs> Who are you? Uh, what church do you belong to? Well, we don't belong to any church. Well, who are you? Well, we're just the brothers, brethren. And so they called themselves the brethren. And not until one of those members imposed himself upon the rest did it become Plymouth Brethren. And it became Plymouth Brethren because he appointed himself as a watchdog to make sure 
that there was no organization they believed in, only the Holy Spirit organizes. So you don't have any organization. And uh, he was one after another, if anyone arose who seemed to have a following, he would do what was necessary to discredit them. And the end result was that he became the, the great czar of the movement and he established himself in the city of Plymouth. And so it's called Plymouth Brethren. But that was John Darby. And John Darby is the one whose, whose uh, theories are put together in the, um, okay, I can't say their name right now. Um, what? Schofield Bible, that's right in the Schofield Reference Bible. It is his views have become the standard evangelical views. And their views were that we were justified at the cross. Now, the Bible nowhere says we were justified at the cross, but the Bible does teach atonement at the cross. Now, what is the difference? The difference is that atonement has to do with what Christ did in caring for the sins of the world. Justification has to do with what he is able to do with those who receive his atonement. And when I receive his atonement, I am justified. I'm justified by that atonement. But I am not justified at the cross. This theory presumes that we were justified before we ever sinned. That we were justified before long, hundreds of years before we were born. Now Christ's atonement was made at the cross. And that atonement was designed for everyone who believes. Therefore, those who believe are justified. But there is no such thing as justification at the cross. And I, uh, I have decided to do some further uh, discussions with relationship to uh, the Plymouth Brethren movement and so forth, because we're faced with it every day. We're not necessarily aware of it, but the Desford has impacted this church in a way that will never uh, be the same again. In other words, the, the theological principles of Plymouth Brethrenism have penetrated deeply into Adventist psyche. And it's well for you to understand these. I had given some thought to dealing with Romans 5, which is the verse 18. Romans 5.18 is the passage of the scripture that all of those who believe in justification at the cross used to substantiate that. And uh, I may yet uh, deal with that. I have not decided yet exactly, but I did want to introduce you to the issues and for you to understand that Desmond Ford is seeking to deal with a real Adventist problem. I was seeking the answers to that same problem was led to Minneapolis. By the way, I did not really know much about Minneapolis for years after I had learned to the principles of Minneapolis were the principles that God was teaching me all the time. And that is that our righteousness is by Christ crucified. Crucified for our sins. And therefore, Minneapolis has two faces. One, our uncleanness and our sins and the other, his righteousness. He died for us not merely to forgive our sins, but that we might receive his righteousness. And so uh, as we look further at this, this is the framework in which we understand uh, Des Ford and Brinsby. Now, it's been a long time since Brinsmead's name has been common in Adventism. And I don't know 
how much you may know about Brinsby, but I'm going to take just a, a little time to share with you a bit about Brinsmead because Brinsmead and Ford uh, cannot be understood except in connection with each other. Brinsmead uh, was focused on perfection. Desmond Ford opposed him as one who denied perfection at any time before Christ's coming. And by the way, there is a sense in which he's right. There's a sense in which he's right. And we need to understand that sense. We will not have a change of this mortal body until Christ comes. We have a sinful nature that we received by birth. We did not receive Adam's guilt at birth, but we did receive a sinful nature, and that nature will continue with us and battle against us through that sinful nature that Satan is able to gain control over our minds and our thinking because it has to do with self-centeredness. And we are by nature self-centered. I have to acknowledge to you that I am selfish. I am proud by nature. I am not proud of it. <laughs> I'm not grateful for it at all. I prayed when I was a young man for God to take my will. I wanted him to, to control my will because I, I couldn't have any assurance. During that period of time after my conversion, when I was telling you that I was repeatedly uh, cast down. I asked God and prayed and asked him to take my will, to control it for me. I would have been glad for him to do so. The fact is he would not do so. Why? It's through the exercise of my will that I gain character. And it's my character that God is concerned about. And it is through my wrestling with the trials and challenges that Satan brings to me that I gain the victory over pride and selfishness. Because it brings me to repentance. It brings me to sense my need. It brings me to a point where I look to him. Hebrews 12, 2. Looking into Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Now, do you believe it, brothers and sisters, that God has begun a good work in you? Amen. Then you must believe by the same basis, the same word. You must believe that he will finish it. Being confident of this very thing, Philippians 1, 6, that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it into the day of Jesus Christ. Now, that's my only hope. He will finish it. He has promised to finish it. Therefore, he has assumed that responsibility. But he only received, has only accepted that responsibility on the basis of my receiving him and his righteousness. And as I receive him, I receive his righteousness. And it's his righteousness that works in me both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So we have Ford's security lies then in the Plymouth Brethren theology and the Plymouth Brethren theology is based on the belief that if we um, that if once we're all once we're saved we're always saved therefore they can teach that Christ justified us at the cross. Once we receive him, we cannot be lost. This, by the way, is a Calvinist doctrine. And this is what Plymouth Brethrenism is based upon. And, it was, and this is what gave Ford his sense of security. And in doing this, what he actually did was to get rid of the justification, sanctification, uh, 
the word. Dilemma. And, well, dilemma is all right. That wasn't what I was looking for, but that's good. It'll get us past. <laughs> It'll get us going. The uh, equation is what I was trying to. What, the word, not the word, but it's equation, uh, which is a dilemma. And uh, it was during the time when uh, Desmond Ford, in about 1970, it was the time uh, when Desmond Ford's wife was dying of cancer. And Brinsmead's wife agreed to bring her into her home and take care of her. She was a nurse. She uh, brought her into his home and uh, cared for her during her last uh, months and weeks and months. And it was at that time that Brinsmead, who was no longer a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church because he had been removed from the books a number of years before, but he continued to preach the three angels' messages, the basic principles, and was preaching on the air that Christ, um, he was preaching that, that, that the Antichrist was the papacy. And a man by the name of Paxton, you may have heard his name, you may not, but Jeffrey Paxton heard him preach. Jeffrey Paxton happened to be a Plymouth Brethren theologian. He called Des, uh, Brinsmead, said, come over, I want to talk to you. So Brinsmead went over. And as a result of their discussion, Brinsmead was led to accept the Plymouth Brethren theology. And that theology is simply that there is no judgment for the righteous. We've already been, when Christ was crucified, he was judged in our behalf and was judged guilty and died for those sins. In other words, he died, we were justified and judged, judged and justified at the cross. This was their, their view. So that when Christ died, he covered our sins and he justified all the, the righteous. Well, it may be a good theory, but it, it may sound like good, a good theory, but it does not take into consideration the realities of Christian experience. The fact is, that Christ made the atonement. He paid the price for all men, all time, for all sin. But always Paul dealt with justification by faith. Those who believe, those are in Christ. Justification is always in Christ Jesus. I am justified because I receive his righteousness. I receive his debt payment but I also receive his life, his very life. Live out thy life within me. This is a true experience that we are to have. And when through the Holy Spirit's presence, Christ is present within, then we are able to live uh, the principles of his love, which is really what's involved. Because uncleanness is always self selfishness that violates the principles of love. Now, when we decide that, as, as Plymouth Brethren does, that justification is strictly legal, solely legal, has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit, has nothing to do with present experience. It is strictly a legal thing that God has already justified us. When we believe that, it's impossible for us to understand Ellen White. It's impossible because Ellen White it makes the most tremendous statements of our need for Christ. If there's any author who's consistently Christ-centered, it's Ellen White. However, she also insists that Christ expects character development and that this, the only thing we'll take with us into eternity is our own character 
and that the God will only accept those whose characters are purified of sin. So what it does is to pit Ellen White against Ellen White and caused uh, Paxton to declare that Ellen White has a wax nose. You push it whatever way you want. And that's what actually happens. Some take the statements that will support this. Some will take statements that support that. The two opposite things. And uh, whichever one we choose, we, we push the nose that way. And by the way, this is the best way to discredit the spirit of prophecy. And I must say that conservatives have joined hands with liberals in discrediting Ellen White because each has focused on one principle and ignored or denied the other. And as they do, they, what they're doing, each one can make plenty of statements to support their cause, but until they bring these principles together, they cannot understand Ellen White because she presents them both and she presents them in a, a way to, to give us true understanding of righteousness by faith. Now, Ford's security is in uh, Plymouth Brethren Theology, which, by the way, is Nisio Lutheran Theology. I am giving serious thought to bringing to you a study on Luther and Melanchthon that will underline and explain this. But it fails to resolve the justification versus sanctification problem. God does expect his people to live pure lives. God expects to purify our experience. He intends to remove our, our uh, uncleannesses. Notice it's in plural. Uncleanness says any uncleanness results in uncleanness in, in the various areas. If we're, if we're selfish, we're liable to show that selfishness in many, many different ways. The, the whole thing, it, however, is uncleanness. And it's uncleanness that God wants to give us victory over. When we receive that law in our minds and in our hearts, our focus will not be on self. It will be on Christ. And this is what will give us victory over uncleanness. Though our natures will remain until this mortal puts on immortality and this corruption puts on incorruption, in the words of Paul in Corinthians 15, Our security lies in Christ. The only place for any security is in Christ Jesus. And John tells us in 17th chapter and verse 3, this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Now, he who has the Son has life. He who has not the Son of God does not have life, 1 John 5.10. It is the presence of Christ in our lives that gives us his righteousness. He is a person. When we claim his righteousness, we're claiming him, and he will abide in us. In 1939 to 1947, those are the eight years, I saw justification as dealing with past sins. But what about the present? I can never be sure that God accepted me. I, how could I be righteous enough for him to accept me now? And if I can't be assured of present salvation, how can I be assured of future passing the judgment? And therefore, as a result, I often had bad dreams. I had dreams of the judgment. And I tell you, those were not very nice dreams. They were dreams that brought horror because they did not have the assurance. And what we need is not to get rid of the judgment. 
which Desmond Ford finally did completely. But we need to get rid of our own insecurity because of trusting to self. We need the righteousness of Christ. So my stress over sanctification continued until I understood that justification is also present. In other words, justification is not just for past sins. It is for my uncleanness. When I receive Christ, I am not justified because I'm perfect. I am accepted by God as though I had no sin. But that didn't mean that I had no selfishness. Didn't mean that my uncleanness was gone. It means that I'm accepted by God because I'm looking to Jesus instead of self. And this is my righteousness. Paul says, you are in Christ who became our justification and sanctification and redemption. Uh, brothers and sisters, there's no more need to compare and contrast justification and sanctification than there is sanctification and redemption. All three words apply to the same thing. We're redeemed because we're bought by his death, paid our penalty. We are sanctified because we are in connection with him and we are trusting his righteousness. And when we claim his righteousness, honestly, then we have no question about the judgment. And we are justified by receiving Christ's atonement, the cross at the cross, which is our theme for this period of time. I think we will end our study here, which is a little after three. Christ is now our righteousness. And this is the main thing to remember. He is now my righteousness. If he is not my righteousness now, he never will be. That what I'm saying is not that I can't change my mind or can't choose differently, but it is only as I understand Christ as being my righteousness right now that I understand the principle. He's not my righteousness because I'm clean. He is my righteousness because I know that I'm unclean. And I claim his cleansing by faith. And I trust that he has accepted me by faith in his word, not in mine. Shall we bow our heads? Father, thank you for your many blessings. Thank you for this privilege of considering the principles of justification. Please teach us and help us to understand. In the name of Jesus, amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference at the cross in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.